There are mistakes being made. Some of the horror stories that you see from 911 come from the fact that people are working too quickly. They don't have time to double check. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Dispatchers are the key to our emergency system, but you knew that. However, it is more than a little concerning to realize there is a shortage of dispatchers nationwide. That's a situation that needs to be fixed and fixed fast. How do we do it? My guest today has some ideas. Barry Fury is a public safety consultant and trainer. He's the former director of the Raleigh Wake Emergency Communications Center in North Carolina. In his career spanning four decades, he has managed 911 centers and served as a volunteer fire officer in three other states. And Barry Fury joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. How bad is the shortage? Well, I think it... Depends upon who you ask, but realistically, uh, the shortage is significant, and uh, both the public and first responders should be concerned. Why are we so short of qualified dispatchers at this point? There's not just a single reason, Scott, and it's something that has been building up since the mid-1990s. APCO, the Association of uh, Public Safety Communications Officials, first created a staffing task force to look uh, at this issue back in 1999. I served on that group, and uh, we gave our first report in the year 2000. Again, uh, it's been going on for a while, and several issues. Uh, An issue of... Uh, responsibility, issues of stress, issues of pay, issues of benefit, and issues of of many people not understanding the importance of the position. So uh, how many people are we down? I mean, is there a way to quantify this nationally? Well, it's very difficult to tell on a national level, Scott, but uh, I can reference a couple of agencies and where they stand right now. Uh, San Francisco, again, a very big city, recognizable. Uh, They recently committed $8 million to hire 90, that's nine zero, additional telecommunicators over the next two years. So that should give you some idea of the problem uh, in San Francisco alone. Take you across the country to York, Pennsylvania, perhaps not as well known, but York has an authorized staff of 86 dispatchers. According to union officials, 
in that area. They currently only have 30, three zero uh, actual people available as dispatchers. So that's they are down 56 out of 86. And we can look at South Bend, Indiana, who recently asked for 14 new dispatchers and a trainer to help help them to catch up with the shortage. They were only granted four. So there are just three uh, individual agencies that are pretty representative of what you see in almost every community across the country. Now, what's the impact of this shortage? I mean, the trucks are still getting sent out. The police are still being dispatched. How does this this shortage hurt? Well, it hurts in a lot of ways that people probably don't see, Scott. First of all, let me kind of uh, slant this to the fire service because this is a fire service podcast. Everyone in the fire service knows the impact of being shorthanded. If you show up down a few members at the scene of an emergency, there are a lot of things that really need to be done right away that don't get done right away. You have to prioritize. You have to change your strategy and tactics. The same occurs in the 911 center. One of the things that we see in many of these agencies that I referenced and others is that 911 calls are not getting answered as quickly as they should be or as quickly as they used to be. If you have got three people on duty and there are 15 phones ringing all at once, it stands to reason that not all of those calls are going to be answered in a timely manner. There are mistakes being made. No doubt in my mind that some of the horror stories that you see from 911 where a dispatcher made an error comes from the fact that people are working too quickly. They don't have time to double check. It's get the information and move on to the next call. And finally, for the folks in the field, uh, the one thing that I would point out is that Firefighter safety truly is at risk in my mind. Uh, If you take a look at NFPA 1221, the standard that really governs communication centers, there is a portion of that standard that says the incident commander should request a telecommunicator to monitor the channel uh, on any large events. That sounds very good in theory but it falls apart in in, in practice. While some communities may be able to do this much of the time, and some communities may be able to do this part of the time based upon call load, uh, I can tell you there are hundreds of communities out there that just do not have the staff in to do this. So if you are calling a May Day, uh, you had better hope that your community falls into the uh, category of those sufficient staff to have somebody listening. And even when these folks are listed, they may well be listening and juggling phones and even giving CPR information on call, for example. So that's not really listening. So all those things impact firefighter safety. That's a shortage problem. When a PSAP or a dispatch station is fully staffed, is that fully staffed enough to get the job done, or are those numbers too low? Oh, Scott, that is that is a great question, and, and, and let's talk about that from a couple of different angles. 
there are a number of uh, formulas and toolkits out there that help communities uh, accurately, reasonably accurately determine what is an optimal level of staffing. Even communities that are up to staff on paper often do not provide the type of service that public safety requires. Uh, for example, an agency in Georgia was recently criticized for the length of time it took to answer 911 calls after uh, someone ran their car to an occupied restaurant. But looking at the looking at the case, the matter is they dispatched sources quickly on the first call, but got bumped down very very quickly um, because dozens of people called to report the same incident. So one of the phenomenon that we see uh, is that even being staffed doesn't necessarily staff uh, provide you with enough staff to handle even day-to-day emergencies. And, and, and one of the causes of factors is the presence of cell phones. Now even a very, very minor event that is in a visible location can generate dozens, if not hundreds, of telephone calls. And nobody, and I mean nobody, is staffed to deal with that concurrent volume. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. In my uh, experience as 911 director, I've often asked for uh, additional personnel. Uh, many times, municipalities, when given those requests, start looking at neighboring communities to try to get a feeling for uh, how many dispatchers those uh, towns and villagers are using. Unfortunately, uh, nothing uh, says that the number that they are using uh, has been been the result of any study or justification. So uh, as an industry, we compound the problem by comparing ourselves to our neighbors who oftentimes may also be wrong. Another point that I want to explore is the idea that these dispatchers, if they're shorthanded, may be placed under more stress, which could result in shorter careers for them anyway. Uh, Yeah, there are a number of... uh, working conditions associated with the job to start to start off with but yeah the the call volume uh is really uh leading to uh premature burnout the uh second part of that comes from the exposure that today's dispatchers receive as compared to uh dispatchers of 20 years ago uh, very seldom did telecommunicators actually have to talk directly to the victims. 
Now, with the use of cell phones, many of the victims may be calling uh, 911 uh, directly themselves. While I managed a center in um, Tennessee, uh, we received a phone call from a a woman who was uh, in an airplane that had crashed uh, who uh, was actually sitting next to her husband who was killed in the crash. So that type of interaction didn't happen 20 years ago. Much of the concern is that from that, that uh, 20 years from now, with the import of videos and uh, pictures uh, into the 911 call process, that there's going to be even uh, more stress-related burnout because uh, the dispatchers are not only going to hear the problem, they're going to see it as well. That's a frightening thought. So we've got a couple problems here. We have compensation. We have that job-related stress that you referred to. How can we fix this? If you had a magic wand and you could fix the situation today, what would you have to do? The the bottom line is that uh, there are no standards nationally for telecommunicators. Uh, Yes, there is the NFPA 1061, but that's not uh, universally adopted. So you've got to start by making standards. You've got to raise the pay. You've got to make sure enough numbers uh, are out there in the seats. And you've got to give people reasonable, reasonable benefits. So I'm not suggesting that they are the same benefits of um, police officers and firefighters, but a reasonable retirement. If you are 65 years old working the midnight shift taking 911 calls, it's probably time to be rewarded for a career. All right, Barry Fury, thanks for being on Code 3 again. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure to be here. And we put some more information on the dispatcher shortage and how to contact Barry on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash dispatcher. Check it out. Here comes your trivia question. When and where was the first steam-powered fire engine built? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. Here's the trivia answer. The first self-propelled steam-powered fire engine in the U.S. was built in 1841 in New York. But steam power really didn't catch on for decades, and by that time, gasoline engines were almost here. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orrin. Until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.